Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Shanghai's two-month-long lockdown is finally over, but what comes next? In today's episode, we're talking about China's zero COVID policy, which could be here to stay, and what that might mean. The Peking University economist Su Jianguo predicted that the latest COVID wave could have an economic toll ten times greater than the 2020 Wuhan outbreak. And Premier Li Keqiang is warning that China's growth targets for the whole year may already be out of reach. There were even feverish rumours of a split between Li Keqiang and Xi Jinping in the lead-up to the Party Congress in October. To make sense of China's zero COVID world, we're joined by Victor Shu, political economist at the University of California, San Diego, and out today the author of Coalitions of the Week: Elite Politics from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi Jinping. We're also joined by Jennifer Pack, the Shanghai-based correspondent at Marketplace. Um, Jennifer, to start with you, you've just come out the other side of Shanghai's grinding lockdown.、Um, tell us the first thing you did when you got out of lockdown, and, and what's the mood in the city right now?、Um, well, I was working, <laughs>、um, but I guess the mood is、uh, relief because、uh, for many people, they have not been able to leave their homes.、Um, I do have to caution that. We're not really calling it a lifting of a lockdown because、um, things are certainly not back to normal.、Um, yes, we're able to leave our front doors now,、uh, not just for testing, but any time we want. But here's the trade-off: in order for me to go into any building, any、uh, public venue, any public transportation. I have to have a valid PCR test for COVID、um, from the last seventy-two hours. This pretty much means that I'm going to be going to testing points almost every other day.、Um, and judging from the、uh, videos that I've seen of these、uh, lineups and how long it takes, yeah, we're going to be doing it every other day. And then we have to scan our health QR code whenever we go into any venues. So really. What it means is that we are going to subject ourselves to a lot of、uh, monitoring and a lot of testing、um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, there must be an absolute army of PCR workers out there to、uh, to make this even possible. I mean, we, I mean, does anyone have any idea how many there are of them, and, and where are they finding them all? So the testing points, I think they said they set up some fifteen thousand across Shanghai. That's supposed to be semi-permanent.、Um, we don't know what the figure is, but what I did see was in my、um, apartment complex, the security guard passed around a job posting、um, for somebody to work in Pudong in the news district over there,、um, and yeah, they were saying it, it was sent the day before. Um, the easing of the restrictions were coming, and so they were paying about two hundred yuan a day,、um, so about thirty thirty dollars a day, and <laughs> and and they said that the job might be anywhere from three to twelve months. They're going to provide room and board、um, and provide training if you want. So they said it was supposed to be a relaxing job. I, I have no idea how many people there are, but I, I'm sure、um, if anybody's looking for a job, there's definitely a market for it. It doesn't strike me as a relaxing job. I've got to say. Yeah, I, I mean, in general, there there is this kind of a problem 
which is that during the lockdown, and please correct me if this is not right, Jennifer, it seems that a lot of migrant workers without uh, Shanghai hukou, uh, and without their own properties in Shanghai, they were kind of just completely locked out of all residential area and they were sort of drifting around or even homeless. And then, of course, as soon as the lockdown was gradually lifted, many of them left the city because they were treated so horribly. And then now suddenly it's like, oh, well, we, we need I mean, of course, you know, Shanghai residents are not going to do the jobs of testers and, and so on and so forth. They will be migrant workers, but are they going to be there when they were treated so terribly during the lockdown? So the people that we heard who were locked out, usually they were delivery drivers. They were people who needed to do these important jobs to bring the food to 25 million residents around. Um, And that was the calculus they had to make because um, if they decided to leave the residential compound, and this was true for for anyone, whether they are whatever their uh, residential uh, permit is, they had to... Uh, just leave and sign. And some of them were made to promise their uh, communist neighborhood committee that they will not return. Um, Because at that time, the emphasis was they have to be able to monitor all of the people within the compound. So we all go out testing at the same time. Okay, so we make sure that we're not leaving this area. And that was how officials were trying to uh, ensure we're going to stamp out the outbreak. Certainly, yes, migrant workers were at more risk because, of course, the types of accommodations they were living at. Often they were in uh, living in groups, right, in, in an apartment. Maybe it could, could be eight to ten people. But let's not forget the reason they came to Shanghai is because they can make uh, money. This is still the wealthiest city in mainland China. Yes, the cost of living is going up, but unfortunately, the economics is still very much that you have to work in the major cities and along the East Coast in China still to make really good money. So um, it's possible that a fair number of them left, but I'm sure some of them might come back. But we kind of laugh a little bit that if they're just leaving just because they they are worried about the lockdown. Well, I mean, the whole of mainland China is in a zero COVID (laughs) policy here. So these snap lockdowns can happen anywhere, anytime. And you can see that given what happened in Shanghai at the moment, This particular outbreak, I'm not saying that the policy was not harsh or brutal anywhere else. It was, and it has been in the past two years. It's just that it didn't hit the major cities in this way. And because the outbreak did not escalate um, beyond what Wuhan had, uh, they didn't have such a brutal lockdown. So you saw even in Beijing, they were now learning from Shanghai, boarding up communities, putting gates, um, stopping food delivery, uh, drivers from crossing districts. Uh, All of these measures now are going to be replicated in other places, which means that even if you look at Tianjin, what, there were 26 cases, suddenly two or three districts were going into mass testing. Um, So you're going to see more and more of this happening. Um, So yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to escape, uh, (laughs) there's really no safe place in mainland China. So, Victor, let's talk about that politics of zero COVID. Those encroachments on people's lives are, have been incredibly visible. You know, we've all seen the the footage of, you know, hungry people shouting out of windows and whole compounds being taken away. And from what Jennifer's saying, you know, if you are going to COVID testing every other day, that this is really a massive encroachment on people's lives. What do you think the motivations are driving this zero COVID approach when 
the political cost in terms of political capital seems to be so very high. Um, yeah, so I, I think the main considerations are twofold. Uh, one is, you know, um, as we all know, there's a very important party congress taking place in Beijing uh, this fall. Uh, and, you know, part of the calculus must be that if uh, COVID were to, you know, spread around China uncontrollably, uh, there would be sort of uh, over 1 million deaths. Uh, and at least that's the calculation of the top experts in China. And that in itself would be kind of a human tragedy. And But on top of that, it could make holding the party Congress in person, at least, very difficult. Uh, and of course, the leadership would not want that. Uh, but I think maybe a larger consideration is that, um, you know, after the success of 2020 in China, that the Chinese government uh, was able to control the spread of COVID in China at a time when the rest of the world uh, was not successful in doing that. And COVID, you know, ended up infecting hundreds of millions of people, uh, millions died around the world. Uh, the party has really made it uh, a key uh, message, uh, both domestically and internationally, that, you know, uh, all, all of you critics of the Chinese political system, here we deliver something very clear, uh, and that uh, where the performance of the Chinese government was vastly superior than that of other governments like uh, the U.S. and even European countries. Uh, and so this is proof that China has a better political system. And this message was uh, hammered, you know, time and again by both top leadership and also by the propaganda apparatus. If suddenly they abandoned the zero COVID policy, it would be kind of an acknowledgement that perhaps uh, the policy that was enacted in 2020 was not uh, perfect, uh, was not the you know perfect uh, anecdote to the pandemic that the Chinese government had uh, uh, framed it as. So Jennifer, I'd just um, like to ask you about what the, the mood, if you like, was um, like within your, your housing compound. I mean, we've heard a lot about pushback at the, the grassroots and obviously your experience in a lockdown is pretty atomized, but I mean, what was the feeling around issues like, you know, the supply of food, the quality of food, um, you know, odd things like people getting what supplies of traditional medicine delivered to their door, this, this drug called Lianghua Qingwen. I mean, um, you know, what, what was the general pulse like in, in your compound? You know, it's funny, I joined um, the group chat in my compound a little bit late. So I, the only reason that happened was because I w wasn't able to get any food from these e-commerce apps. And so I was asking the security guard, I said, is anything happening in this in this compound? Like, could I, is there another way to get food here? Um, so it got added in. I have to say that my group chat is not that active, but there's a special reason. Uh, I've discovered that the compound I'm living in uh, is actually full of retired civil servants. I'm not going to say which department. And so I do believe that's partly why some of the handouts in my area have been so wonderful. So when I am on handout number seven or 10, uh, a lot of my friends around the city in different districts are not even at half of that. And by the way, just for comparison, so for me, in the first few uh, handouts, I got German sausages, I had frozen shrimp, I had wontons, and then you would get for vegetables, which was the coveted thing, you got two two carrots or one carrot, three potatoes, you know, three cucumbers. And if you were a single person, yeah, that's something that you can live off of. Two 
even that's that might be fine for a few days. But if you are like my news assistant who's living in Baoshan district, which had the worst handouts for the longest time, um, th- one of the first few handouts he got was a pack of yogurt and noodles and um, cooking oil. Amongst my friends, I would say, it's the first time I've seen them actually pay attention to news so closely that they were the first ones to get access to a lot of these videos. Um, So actually, before I went to bed at night, I would have to take the time because I would see like 300, 500, 600 messages just from this one group chat. And, And it was very useful because they kept getting all these messages so fast. And then by the time I came onto it by uh, at about midnight, a lot of them had already been blocked and censored. So, so I'd have to ask back and say, "Oh, okay, so what, what what was that then?" And I remember at the beginning, one of my friends said, "Am I just naive? Are we the first ones for this to happen to?" And I said, "No, obviously not." I said, "Don't you remember Xi'an? Do you not remember Wuhan?" And here's the thing: I mean, there is a place by the border near the Myanmar, Reili, in Yunnan Province. That we had been speaking to people there for, uh, and over the past two years, like it was incredible the amount of um, restrictions they had been under. Uh, you had to have quarantine going in, and then you had to be quarantined in the third city coming out. Um, and all these jade traders, they had left, or they 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 went to Guangzhou because they couldn't do business, um, and and people did sound the alarm some young people they went on social media when they came out um you know a high school student and some of them are university students and they got shouted down online and saying oh you're just complaining and whatever but for the first time the wealthiest most educated citizens in china got firsthand let's call it a front row seat to how the censorship apparatus works to feeling the full weight of the Chinese Communist Party and their decisions and how one decision can just wipe out all of their plans in their lives in one go. And so from that point, you can tell from my friends who are very educated, they're very well-traveled, they all had passports, they could go to a lot of places. And this includes some of my Taiwanese friends, okay? And they were just stunned. They said, how could the Chinese government print out these stories and say that we're easing? And why is everyone congratulating me? I feel like this is such an insult. Congratulations on a lockdown being lifted. I mean, we were being congratulated two, three weeks ago. And they were infuriated. And this was happening to people outside of Shanghai because this is when they really saw the censorship apparatus go into, I would say, uh, full turbo mode because it, they were censoring all these videos really quickly. They put out this so-called rumor busting platform and it had nothing to do with the reality because they would just say, oh, well, there's no weeds happening in, in on the bund. They they lied. And, and that was their way of rumor busting. This is a, an account that's uh, associated with the liberation uh, daily. And, and they just don't, they just don't trust it for the very first time. And they realized that a lot of, at one point in time, do you remember there was a video called April Voices? There was just a combination of all of these um, calls that people made to uh, the complaint hotline, one, two, three, four, five. And also to um, their own neighborhood district community 
to complain about the lack of supplies and the issues of trying to access medicine, going to the hospital, and it was just a combination of all of these calls that I, what had been circulating, but you know, compiling them all together uh, made an impact. Before you knew it, you could just see, like, on my WeChat feed was just, you know, one after the other, all, everybody was posting it. And then suddenly, instead of blocking individual posts, it turns out that we uh, heard from people outside of Shanghai who did not see these posts. So it was quite amazing that, that you could see a different type of censorship and different technologies and how they're doing it. And all of my friends sort of saw it for the first time in real time. Um, and so I think that that was interesting for me to, to uh, see because it was something that I could never explain to them. And a lot of them sometimes, because they lived a very cushy life in Shanghai, they said, oh, you know, what are you all on about in the foreign media? Like, about Xinjiang, about Hong Kong, you're just complaining. Look at how wonderful life is here. I could go to a Michelin star restaurant. Um, I, I can eat wonderfully. Look at the bond, it's beautiful. And all of that is true. I'm not denying it. We do have a really nice life here. But... We're living in a bit of a bubble, and because we were very privileged to be able to have that distance from the Chinese Communist Party on a daily basis. This is the very first time they are encountering their very local neighborhood committees and their neighbors trying to feed them to get the packages to their door. So, I mean, Victor, the Communist Party has often sort of depended on this performance legitimacy for its public support. What do you think is happening now? Is that being eroded by the fact that elites are now, as Jennifer put it so memorably, you know, having a front row seat to the arbitrary decisions of the state and censorship and, you know, surveillance on a level that they never had before? I mean, do you think the Communist Party's public support is suffering? Um, so I think certainly for the well-to-do middle class, especially in key cities like Shanghai and now Beijing, that uh, is happening. And, and it's a new thing uh, related to COVID. Uh, but I would say that for young people uh, who are educated, this is not even such a new thing, right? So remember, even before COVID, we had um, phenomena like involution, you know, Neijuan and also Tangping, lie flat. Uh, becoming increasingly popular concepts because the competition for young people, even college or even graduate school graduates, um, had become so intense. And this kind of uh, middle class, upper middle class lifestyle is increasing, was already be increasingly become very difficult for even very well educated young people. Um, and of course, a few of them a few years ago tried to organized into a kind of a quasi-Marxist political movement, uh, and they were arrested. But but these were Peking and Renda graduates from some of the best universities in China. So I think for young people, this uh, certainly the constant economic pressure, uh, as well as the sense of constantly being censored. And, you know, of course, since 1989, students in universities have been heavily, heavily watched over uh, both by fellow students as well as sort of on the internet. So so that uh, is certainly not a new thing for young people. Uh, and I think 
in recent months, that has only gotten worse, uh, even to a point where, of course, some students at Peking University stage a, a kind of a protest when their dormitories were in uh, not not just locked down, but just sort of blocked off from, from the outside world. So I think for young people, they're under a trem- tremendous amount of pressure. A lot of the protests, even when there was the moment when uh, people were asked to bang their pots and pans uh, outside their balcony doors, um, and even, I think, in Beijing with the students protesting, I didn't see a lot of people actually saying no to zero tolerance for COVID. Um, In Shanghai, for example, they were protesting that they weren't getting supplies. They couldn't get their normal deliveries. Even people who had the money couldn't. And suddenly we were being forced to buy these bulk orders, box sets um, that were two to three times at least at the beginning, the normal price, um, if you were lucky to be able to afford it. And if they couldn't, then they needed to live off of government supplies. But in a lot of these districts, as I mentioned, they were not getting them. So they were calling for supplies. They said, please let us get our deliveries. Um, In Beijing, I think they were protesting, not necessarily that they had to lock down, but why are there separate rules for faculty versus students? You know, so I think that overall, and especially over the past two years, there have been uh, strong support in China for zero COVID because they saw the case in Wuhan and how life had returned. I mean, remember, um, it was only a few months. Wuhan was locked down for 76 days. But the rest of the country, especially here in Shanghai, was not felt for that long. It was maybe a few weeks. We were back at the office face to face um, within two weeks. And I was traveling domestically by April 2020. There were inconveniences, but people were willing to put up with it. I think this time around, people could see that, especially the well-educated in Shanghai, they thought some of the policies really crossed the lines, which is, okay, if you need to isolate from the people who are infected, that's fine. But why can you not do it at home if you can recover so quickly? Why must you be uh, sent off to these isolation facilities, some of them half finished and they're, you know, not in good conditions, you can't shower? Um, Why do you have to separate children from parents and officials finally semi-step back, I have to say. They they made some concession, but it wasn't in all cases where parents can stay with their children. Um, what about pets? I mean, I had so many friends who were just worried sick about their pets because there was this horrible video of a corgi being beaten to death by somebody in a hazmat suit. Um, that just really made all of my friends who own pets and animal-loving friends who just could not believe this was happening. So, by and large, there was a lot of anger towards all of these different things. And then later on, it was it was scary because they said, OK, well, now the entire building can be hauled off over one case. And some landlords were forced to hand over their keys so that people can come in and disinfect. I mean, it was insane. There were videos of people opening the fridge and just hosing down the inside contents of this fridge and all of your furniture nobody's talking about who's going to pay for that i mean these are really expensive properties in shanghai and so i think there was a lot of backlash against these very harsh measures why do you have to put gates in front of our doors treat us like we're animals but i'm not seeing an overall kind of resentment towards the uh, zero tolerance for covid so, Victor, I mean, listening to, to, to Jennifer talk about that, I mean, 
whenever I see odd bureaucratic stuff in China, I always reach for the formula Ren Tai Wu. Um, so basically, policy gives you an opportunity to control personnel, to control funds, and to control materials. I mean, is part of the persistence of zero COVID about the development, if you like, of a pandemic industrial complex? That there are vested interests who are making a lot of money and also getting a lot of power out of these uh, operations. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, one would assume that uh, there are. A number of pharmaceutical companies in China that have made a lot of money. I mean, you know, sort of billions and billions of renminbi, uh, maybe even a trillion, uh, over a trillion renminbi at this point has been spent on uh, both the vaccination and treatment side, and also in the especially the testing side. Uh, of course, China is with testing being so common in all the major cities. They must be going through, you know, billions of testing kits every week, uh, and someone is even at like kind of ten kwai a piece per test or or whatever the price is. Someone's making a lot of money. Um, there have been a couple of arrests uh, already, uh, which I presume are you know is related to potentially sort of corruption uh, related to COVID testing and treatment. Um, but I don't know if they're going to, going to do more, right? So, so some of this corruption also must reach to very high-level officials, uh, and there are all kinds of rumors related to that. Um, but, but I think at the end of the day, the ideological concern about the legitimacy of Chinese policies relative to policies enacted in the rest of the world is probably a more important factor than this kind of uh, COVID industrial complex, uh, if you will. Uh, it's massive because um, remember last year there was one case in Shenzhen at a southern port and they shut it off and suddenly there was uh, more chaos, let's call it, in the global supply chains. Um, this time, though, Shanghai's lockdown was felt around the world for sure, simply because Shanghai, it's not just a manufacturing hub, it's not a financial hub, it's also a transport hub. In theory, we heard that the Shanghai port was operational. It was supposed to be. But because of the severity of this uh, Omicron outbreak by Chinese standards, let's let's say, there were warehouses that were not open. Uh, we were told by a Japanese manufacturer saying that for some reason they had their cargo now being tested by a hospital for COVID. Because remember, Chinese officials believe that uh, COVID could be transmitted through parcels, through frozen foods. And even though I have asked health officials, like, what is the likelihood and percentage? Because uh, international scientists all around have said that the likelihood is very low, even if you do detect COVID on the surface of these things. But they, but I think the mentality is that even if there is a slight percentage of that happening, we need to make sure we get rid of it, stamp it out. That's what zero tolerance for COVID really means. And so they started testing these cargos and it was costing uh, hundreds of dollars per container tanks coming in. And that just created a massive backlog in addition to already the logistic challenges that were happening with the Ukraine war and then also you know, the ongoing uh, COVID policies. Across China, there is not one business who can say that they are not feeling the impact, especially if they manufacture stuff because that they can't get some of the supplies. 
they can't get some of the parts from other parts of China. They can't get the stuff that's coming from the south of China to bypass Shanghai to go up to the north. And so uh, we spoke to somebody up in uh, at the European Chamber of Commerce saying that 40% of its members had to uh, stop production temporarily. I think we heard that about Tesla as well. They were told, okay, we will go back to work and we're going to operate in a bubble, uh, meaning that you eat, sleep and work at the factory. But guess what? One of their suppliers, I think they had a case or a couple of cases of COVID and suddenly they didn't have that part. And they said, okay, well, sorry, we can't do this anymore. So Shanghai is a massively important part of the global supply chain. Well, one of the systems that the government has enacted to try to uh, make sure that ordinary commerce can continue is this white list. Uh, So I'm sure you've heard of this, Jennifer, where firms that can guarantee that they have no infections can trade and ship goods to other firms that can guarantee that they have no infections. But I, I don't see how that's even possible short of uh, forcing all the workers to live and work in the factory, which would make them kind of labor camps. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I have an example like 3M, you know, the medical mask um, uh, manufacturer and medical supplies. Okay, so they should be very well organized, right? Given that in 2020, they were allowed to continue producing and it did happen here in Shanghai for the rest of China. Um, Even they said that uh, maybe only 50% or less than 50%, the head of China operations said less than 50% of their workers were eligible to apply to go back to work. So they had a difficulty because, you know, this zero COVID policy works because all of the building supervisors, all of your uh, communist neighborhood committees, they suddenly had a massive amount of say uh, about how these rules are interpreted. And so there were lots of workers who were not uh, who were not allowed to leave. And once you left, you couldn't come back, of course. But some of these facilities, for example, 3M was saying they were not set up to have facilities and dormitories there. So what they had to do was find a hotel close enough that they could seal off and have a designated bus to then transport their workers to the factory back to the hotel every day. I mean, think of the enormous cost. So yes, there was a whitelist, and I think initially it was 600 companies, and then it was like 1,200 more. That's a drop in the bucket of like how many companies are in Shanghai. And also, like all of them were not operating at even, you know, close to full capacity, let's say. So, so Victor, just to, to get back to the, the numbers, like the, you had Li Keqiang looking even gloomier than usual, um, uh, talking about the forecast numbers and after the lockdown. I mean, some of the numbers coming out in March and April were, 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 were pretty shocking. I mean, um, I mean those, those are the official numbers we're getting from within China. I mean, how bad do you think it's going to get? Yeah, so it was uh, particularly bad because, uh, as Jennifer mentioned already, Shanghai um, is just economically uh, one of the economic, if not the economic centers of China. The the, the amount of value added uh, in and around Shanghai is just enormous compared to most other cities in China. There, there are really only a few other cities where there's as much production uh, and also transportation that's going on. Um, you know, maybe Guangzhou, 
um, maybe Ningbo. But besides these two cities, I mean, even when you talk about a city like Beijing or up north in Shenyang, these are the value added in those cities is much lower than that in Shanghai. So the fact that Shanghai was in lockdown really hit the overall economic situation. Uh, going forward, you know, if China is lucky and we see some of these smaller cities getting hit uh, with outbreaks and not a big city like Shanghai, the economic impact should be limited. But of course, uh, without additional booster shots, uh, you know, hopefully with uh, mRNA technology related vaccines, um, it's it's really, you know, it's hard to say whether another round of outbreak is not going to revisit uh, Shanghai. One of the things that there's been the most speculation about has, of course, been the role of Li Keqiang, his sudden appearance all over the papers, the disappearance um, of Xi Jinping, a lot of rumours about possible split between Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. Jennifer, from where you're sitting, um, is there anything in that? I mean... This is a country where you can't even get within arm's length of a spokesperson <laughs> to the leaders. Anything, any kind of intel I have is probably not intel at all. I can tell you that people are interested um, in this kind of intrigue. But at the same time, especially here in Shanghai, I don't know how Beijing is because sometimes maybe Beijing is much more attuned to this kind of stuff. Um, Shanghai is... I would say that they're they finally uh, a lot of my friends let's just say are, are much more aware now of the power of the central government um, and that it's not good enough because you know there was a common phrase people always had oh whatever is happening and it's very bad is like well at least in Shanghai it's managed very well you know Shanghai is the best it's you think it's bad here but it's the best already and you know this time the best was not good enough for most of the residents. And so I would say that they, uh, at least for a lot of my friends uh, who obviously are white-collar workers, they are, they realize that this is about politics. They realize that they have very little say in how anything goes um, and that any kind of policy that comes from the top, they just have to accept it. And there was a little bit, I have to say, this. I don't know if that's why they don't pay so much attention to this type of politics, but I would say that there is this uh, Beijing-Shanghai tension. Um, there, there was this, a bit of people, I would have to say, there were, there were friends here in Shanghai who informed their friends in Beijing when there were cases, and they said, look, if it's coming, I'm warning you, get an extra fridge, get an extra freezer, stock up. And apparently their friends just didn't listen to them. No, it's not going to happen. This is the political capital. And my friend said, yeah, that's what we thought too, that we were the financial capital. We are very important uh, to the Chinese economy, the global economy. It will not happen here. So, Victor, your quick take, because you're an elite politics guy. I mean, obviously, there's no way to know. But I mean, tea leaf reading, I mean, is there anything in it at all? Uh, well, so clearly, no one has the capacity to openly challenge Xi Jinping um, because he controls the PLA, he controls the security apparatus. You know, you think there is a lot of surveillance vis-a-vis uh, -vis ordinary Chinese people, but on the elite, I mean, every, you know, movement, 
every handwritten note uh, must be carefully, carefully examined by a multitude of agencies in China. I don't think any kind of plot against Xi Jinping is possible, but nonetheless, we have seen some interesting things. Li Keqiang taking a tour uh, to Yunnan, not wearing a mask. Uh, Li Keqiang giving speeches uh, to a group of local officials in Yunnan and then uh, conveying uh, and then, you know, sort of holding this uh, giant 100,000 cadre conference, which is a little bit reminiscent to the 7,000 cadre conference at the end of the Great Leap Forward, uh, which, of course, challenged Maoist policies during the Great Leap Forward. The 7,000 cadre conference was approved by Chairman Mao himself, but the level of criticism against him was a surprise. This meeting also must have been approved by Xi Jinping because all major meetings have to be approved by Xi Jinping. And there was no criticism of existing policies. It just shifted the focus a little bit toward economic growth uh, instead of zero COVID. Uh, so, so I think you know, the most that we can make of that is that uh, Li Keqiang is trying to demonstrate to the rank and file party members and maybe to the people of China that there is a different way of governing, you know, one that's more focused on narrower, narrower range of objectives like economic growth, um, you know, still controlling COVID, but uh, more of a growth uh, orientation, providing a good environment for both foreign and domestic businesses to invest in China, instead of a very expansive set of policy objectives that Xi Jinping, of course, you know, he's in charge of ideology, military, foreign policy, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that could be some kind of contrast. Um, and maybe through this contrast, he's trying to create some kind of pressure in the run up to the 20th Party Congress. Um, but but I think that's the most we can make of it. I, I don't believe that there is any kind of opposition either. But um, Victor, let me just follow up on that, because I think one of the differences that stood out was also a difference in tone, right? A lot of the coverage and a lot of the things that we hear Xi Jinping saying are very kind of congratulatory, we're doing a good job, this, you know, this kind of thing. But the tone of that uh, massive 100,000 person Zoom call or whatever it was, was quite different. It was almost kind of panicky, you know, really things are bad, you know, People are saying we might not even make a 3% growth rate this year. We have no time to lose. And I just thought that was really interesting contrast. To what extent do you think that kind of message was pre-approved by Xi Jinping? Well, so the economy is bad. Uh, so another, many other noteworthy things about that meeting, actually. So if you read the speeches very carefully... Uh, one is that, yeah, so it uh, has a very pessimistic tone, uh, which is in contrast to the kind of messaging on COVID that, oh, you know, the case of Shanghai is a great success. Uh, but, but I think Xi Jinping himself uh, probably would acknowledge that the economy is not doing well. Somebody has to do something about it. Uh, Li Keqiang and the state council has been entrusted with that duty to, you know, revive the economy a little bit. Uh, what's really interesting is that so so the meeting uh, talked about tax cuts, uh, loosening monetary policy, all the usual things. But then toward the end, Li Keqiang said uh, this year, uh, my so the state council has a kind of a slush funds uh, from budgetary surpluses from previous years. That fund is nearly exhausted. And, and he actually acknowledged that. 
Uh, then he said, uh, don't count on any more money from the central government because we're not going to give you any more. Um, that's really noteworthy because the local budget is even worse, <laughs> you know, as Graham must know, right? So the land sales is stalling. Uh, they're highly, highly indebted. All the local, in, in 2020, they actually stopped paying local civil servants at the county level in several provinces. And that required a pretty large central transfer in June and July to pay everybody. So this year, if they say that, you're not going to get another dime from us. Well, all these people are not getting paid. What are they going to do? Right. So it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, it is as if uh, Li Keqiang, well, either is trying to show that, well, you know, our budgetary uh, constraint is really hard. You know, don't count on us to bail you out. Or one could even say, is he trying to crash the economy or something? Well, that was kind of my final question to you. I mean, are we heading for an economic crash and how bad do you think it'll get? Jennifer, you first. Listen, I think that um, economists I spoke to, they said they forecasted that if uh, the lockdown lasted for two months or even three months, there's still possibility to come back. I'm going to use that very cautiously. I don't know what come back really meant at that time. But certainly people here are very hungry. Uh, to go back to work, to try to make it work. I mean, I, I spoke to um, a Taiwanese manufacturer who said that uh, he's working this year not because he thinks he's going to make a profit, but to stem some of the losses. That's that's the best he's hoping, is that maybe I don't lose as much. That's only for companies who still have some cash flow uh, at the end of this, because imagine it's been two months, or two and a half months, actually. Some of the rotating lockdowns happened in March already, right? And uh, they were paying, yes, they were paying their workers, a lot of them just the basic salary, which is not enough to live on. Um, but they still had to pay that. They have now deferred some of the social welfare payments from companies because that's a big chunk as well. Um, but a lot of companies said, well, they haven't received anything yet. Um, they have tax breaks, maybe, but um, also for rent, that's a huge operational cost. Um, a lot of them don't get relief because they're not renting from a state-owned enterprise. So their landlords are in the process of negotiating with them because everybody's saying the same thing. It's like, look, I'm in a bad place. You're in a bad place. Help, let's help each other out. Um, Victor is trying to heading for a slowdown, a crash. Could it go into negative growth? And how can we even tell when so many of the statistics that uh, we're fed by the Chinese government are essentially you know, made up anyway? How can we even tell how bad it is? So, I mean, on the plus side, I think, as Jennifer pointed out, global prices are high, you know, because there's shortage of all kinds of different things around the world. So that creates incentives for the manufacturers to open up the factories and produce as much as possible. Uh, but on the, there are several kind of uh, factors that will be a drag to the economy. So I don't expect a crash, but I also don't uh, think that, you know, achieving 5.5% growth is realistic. I mean, they can fake a whole bunch of numbers and maybe sort of make it happen. Uh, but realistically, it's not going to be 5.5%. Um, it's either going to be kind of 2 3%, which I would say is very good, or it's going to be worse than that. And that depends on what happens to the housing market, uh, whether COVID is going to visit, revisit a large city like Shanghai later in the year. 
uh, and also cons overall consumer sentiment, right? Uh, and the housing market, I think, is very important. It's doing so badly right now that we, we actually have not seen the housing market like this since the 1990s. You know, consecutive months of very low levels of sales, not really recovering in any meaningful way, uh, even as Shanghai's situation has improved. If this continues into June, we're going to have a pretty serious problem because uh, these property companies have stopped buying land already. Local governments are starved of cash. They stop hiring, they stop spending, and you can have this kind of downward. And, and also Li Keqiang just said, the central government is not gonna give another dime to local authorities. So you can have this kind of uh, negative spiral downward in the remainder of the year. Um, so, so I think that's very important. On top of that, stimulus policies in the U.S. and in Euro Europe are ending and households are struggling with what to buy as they grapple with higher food and energy prices. They're not going to spend nearly as much money on clothing, toys and things that are made in China. So the export demand is going to uh, begin to fall actually in the, in the rest of the year. And that's going to be challenging for China also. So, so I think, you know, short of a pretty sizable stimulus from the central government, um, even achieving 2-3% growth may be challenging uh, by the end of the year. What a great place to wrap up. Victor, Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great, thank you. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Jennifer Pack and Victor Shu, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kuang, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.